Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. My name is Stephen Elliott. I'm the pastor of high school ministries here at Grace, and our senior pastor, John, is away on vacation for a few weeks, getting some much-deserved rest. Uh, so I'll be preaching this morning. Uh, next week, Jared Irvine will be preaching, and the week after that, Corey Ogborn will, so get some variety. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, open up to Hebrews, book of Hebrews, chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 1 through 3 this morning. And the title of the message is Run for Your Life. Run for Your Life. Uh, if you, we've been going through the book of James with Pastor John. Uh, Hebrews is the book right before that. So it's kind of towards the back of the New Testament, if you're not sure where it's at. Let me pray for us really quick before we jump in. Gracious God, what an um, incredible gift and privilege it is to, to be here together as your local corporate body, as your bride, the church, uh, to look at the words that you inspired the words that, that are, are God-breathed, are inspired by your Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that, that this morning uh, that they would have the effect in our hearts that you desire them to, that you would be the one that speaks and that we would walk away this morning uh, more faithful to you, walking closer in step with you, uh, more passionately, desperately in love with you alone, Lord. Uh, do that in our hearts this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I know this probably comes as a shock to all of you, but uh, I am not the most athletic person. I know that, you know, <laughs> fooled you. You would, you know, looking at me, you probably think I run marathons and all those things, but surprise, surprise, I don't. Uh, so that means I have to look, when we talk about sports illustrations, I can't draw from too much from my own resources. Um, I have to look to other places. So uh, when I was in the first verse, I was talking about how, like, when I was in high school, I, I swam, but I was more, like, there for the social side of things, and I never really got first place ribbons. Um, the only time I ever did was when I was put on to relay races, and other people swam much faster than me. And Brandon Thompson, I don't know if you know this, but Brandon and I swam together in high school, go Menachee. And, uh, and he, well, he, goes, he goes, it was probably me that helped you get those first place ribbons. And I'm like, actually, yes, yes it was. <laughs> it helped me get the few first places that I got. But again, yeah, not the most athletic guy. So when it comes to sports illustrations, I have to look at other people. Um, I don't know if you have ever heard of He's French, so I'm going to butcher his name, but Sergei Gerard. But he's an ultra... Anybody know who that is? Did I butcher his name? Probably. Um, but he's an ultra marathon runner. Now, the word marathon alone seems daunting. Like, who would want to run that far? But then you throw the word ultra on top of it, and you go, oh my gosh, who, who does this? Well, Sergei Girard does, does it. He is a world record holder. Not only does he run ultra marathons, but he's a world record holder. He, he has run across, 
run across six continents. He, what, what is this? He didn't choose Antarctica. Come on, buddy. Step it up. But no, he's run across all six continents. He holds the record for running the most distance in one year from 2009 to 2010. He ran, this is incredible, listen to this, 16,784 miles in one year. He never missed a day of running. I divided this by 365, and I don't know, I'm sure he ran like more or less on different days, but on average, he ran 46 miles a day. Who, I, I don't drive 16,784 miles. I, I, don't, I don't even like the distance of, that I do drive. I, who would want to run this? Now, this is a man, obviously, who has devoted his life to running. And in an, in, in, in an interview that he, that he gave, he said that he runs, that when he runs, he feels most alive. I would certainly hope so. If you devote that much of your life and time and day, each day, to running, I would hope that something that gives you, that gives you life, that something that, that you enjoy, that you, um, that, that you thrive doing, Think about that. 46, that's like running a marathon, basically, and then like turning around and running back. Uh, just, oh, that seems awful. Anyway, but he loves it. Um, and I am very grateful that, that in the text that we're going to read, that the, that, the, that the writer speaks, he speaks about running and running with endurance and running for life, but he speaks figuratively, not literally, and I'm very, very grateful for that. And we're going uh, to read out of Hebrews, and I'm going to—let me give you—before we jump into that, I need to give you a little background to Hebrews so that we understand the book, because I realize we're actually jumping in towards, like, the, the, last, the last little section of Hebrews. And so if we just jump in, I, um, I don't want us to, to misunderstand what the, what the point, what the, the writer is trying to get at. Really, if you're going to—to give you some background to Hebrews, if you were to summarize the whole book in, in basically just one sentence, you could basically— uh, the basic summary of Hebrews is that, that Jesus is superior, that Jesus is supreme to everything, uh, everything that previously came before Jesus. Uh, he's writing, it's believed, to a, to a, Jewish, to a Jewish Christian audience, uh, primarily Jews that, that came to Christ. But it's clear in the text that they were going through through struggles and trials and going through a difficult season in their life and in their community. And so he's writing to them, first of all, to, or to, to emphasize and to, to drive home to them that everything in their previous life in Judaism, everything in the Old Testament, is inferior to Jesus. And it's not saying that, he is not saying that any of those things were bad, but he's saying in comparison to Jesus, Jesus reigns supreme. He reigns supreme to, the, the, to Moses and the Mosaic law. He reigns supreme to, to angels, uh, to priests and the former priesthood. Um, all of these things, Jesus is greater than all of those things. And he keeps bouncing back. He keeps ping-ponging back to this, this idea as he talks about the supremacy of Jesus to everything. He goes back to and keeps talking about the importance of endurance and perseverance in difficulties. And so it's clear that the, that the audience was probably wrestling with this, 
I mean, they were probably facing persecution and struggles, and, and um, they were probably wrestling with this, this temptation to go back to their old ways in Judaism, um, looking at kind of what they used to have and how, oh, you know, life might, may not have been so bad, you know, in the, the old ways, the, the way we used to do things. And so he's writing to emphasize the fact that Jesus reigns supreme, and because he is supreme, he is worth having, he is worth possessing, and he is worth enduring through all difficulties and all trials if you get Jesus. It's worth it. And then in chapter 11, he gives this, we, we kind of call it typically like the Hall of Fame of the Old Testament. He gives this long list of, of Old Testament uh, characters, people you're probably very familiar with. If you've got Hebrews 12 open, you can just flip back one page and look at Hebrews 11. Um, and he talks about Moses, and he talks about Abraham, he talks about um, Abel, he talks about Enoch and, and David, and, and all of these Old Testament people that you're probably very, very familiar with, and Old Testament prophets. And he does it in part to say, not that, he, he does it to, to remind us that the Old Testament isn't bad. He's not saying like, oh, Judaism, you know, you, your, your old way of life, the Old Testament, um, the, the former law, that's all bad and terrible. He's saying it's, it's fine, and it's it was good, but ultimately because it points to Jesus. And then he's pointing to all these Old Testament characters. He's not saying these are all, you know, the Old Testament's bad, but he's saying, he's saying all of these people are actually examples for us to follow, examples for us to look to, role models for uh, whose, whose life we should be studying, whose life we should be modeling. Um, they're examples of faith and faithfulness. They were examples of endurance in their own way. And he's saying in verse 12 is where we pick up our text. And so he says this. Um, if you've got your Bibles, uh, verses 12, I've got it on the, the screen behind me, if you don't have your Bibles with you. And he says, therefore, so all the, because of all these Old Testament examples that, that he lists, then we get into verses uh, 1 in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Again, if you were to summarize this text in one, one sentence, one phrase, it would be run for your life. Run for your life. Not, not in the sense that we often see in the movies, like run for your life, like, like escape from danger, flee from, uh, you, know, you know, run away from, from the problem, the trouble, the danger, but run for your life. In other words, run towards that thing that gives you life. Run towards after that thing which gives most life. And that thing that the writer is saying is, is Jesus. He's saying the one thing that gives true life, true meaning, true worth, true value is Jesus. And so let's walk through this text. But I, because I think he not only drives home this point of what we are to do, what God desires for us, but he also answers the, the incredibly important uh, the essential question of how do we do it? Because I'm sure you have been given instructions at times on what you should do, but if you're not given the how-to 
a lot of times you wrestle with, it, it kind of is, is void because um, it's like, okay, great point, but like, how do we do this? Well, we're in luck because the writer lay, lays out very clearly how to do it. But the main idea that I think is, is in this point, if you're taking notes, you can fill this in. If not, just, just listen along. But there's, there's, a really, there's a main point. There's a big idea of what the writer is saying here. Um, if, you were to, if you were to summarize it down, is that what he is calling us to do is that we must run the race with unwavering endurance. What the writer is saying here, boiled down, is Christian, run the race that is set before you with unwavering endurance. And thankfully, as I said, he is not talking about a literal race here. He's speaking figuratively. And what he's talking about, this race, is the Christian life. He's saying, live your life with purpose. He's saying, live your life as a follower of Christ with intention. I, I don't know, you probably, I, I've, I've only run one race, actually, official race. I've, I ran a 5K one time, the turkey trot that we, that we have here a few years back, and it was, it was fun. Um, but, and some of you may maybe love that, but we've probably all gone for strolls, right? We've probably all gone for, like, especially now during the weather, you know, with nice weather and everything. You know, it's nice to, like, go for just casual walks, and it's nice because you can do it kind of, you know, you can think about other things. You can have conversations. Uh, it's really funny watching people text and walk because they often run into things. Uh, but, you know, you can, like, you can walk and do other things. You can multitask because you don't have to, like, give focus to what you're doing. You can just enjoy your surroundings. Racers, I imagine, uh, don't do that. They, they run with, with focus. They are determined. They pay attention. They are tracking their time and their distance and where they're at, and they're paying attention to who's in front of them and who's behind them. Um, and they're, they're digging deep, and they're, they're not worried about their surroundings, but they're focused on their task. And, he, and the writer is saying that that is how we have to live our Christian life. Because I think far too often we're doing it like we're on a Sunday afternoon stroll and it's just one part of the whole thing that we do. We have our, you know, maybe Sunday mornings, maybe our Wednesday nights was when we live our Christian life, maybe around other people, but we're doing it kind of half-heartedly. We're doing it too casually. And the writer is saying, do it with unwavering endurance, with intentioned focus. We must run this race with unwavering focus. We have to live this Christian life with unwavering focus. And he wants us to see that when, he, when he's talking about endurance, he's, he's painting the picture of a, of a distance run, of a marathon of some sort. Um, he's not talking about this like quick sprint. We have to remember that this Christian life isn't this quick sprint. It isn't just this like fast seasons of, of like intention, focus. You know, we, we talk about like the camp experience and those things, those camps, those times away aren't necessarily bad. But if, if that's when we relegate our our, our passionate walk with Jesus to just those, those weekends, those Sunday mornings when we really focus and then we just live casually the rest of our life. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this, this long haul, this distance from here till the day I die mentality of walking, following after Christ. It's living the Christian life with endurance. And the question to ask and the question that is answered here, thankfully, is how to? How do we do it? Uh, well, thankfully, the writer unpacks it here. How do we live the life God desires for us to live with endurance? Uh, the first thing is look always to Jesus. Look always to Jesus. In verses 2 and 3, he says, Looking to Jesus, the founder 
and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see, as I said in, in verses 2 and 3, it's being, it, it, the writer says it here, but it's also being repeated throughout the book, is that Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater than everything else, and Jesus is worth keeping our eyes on. He's worth more. He's greater than anything else. In verse 2, the writer says, look to him. And then in verse 3, the writer says, consider him. With this, this idea of considering is not just like keep him in front of you, look at his example, but it's also think about him. He's saying, Christian, engage your brain. Use your mind and keep thinking about Jesus. In other words, he's saying, assess how would Jesus respond in this situation. Think, Christian, he's saying, how would Jesus handle this person, this difficult situation, this difficult person, um, this scenario that I find myself in? What does God's word say about it? What does Jesus do in that situation? How does Jesus, what is his teaching? He's saying, keep Jesus at the forefront of your mind. Look to Jesus. But more than that, the writer isn't just saying, look to Jesus as an example for how to live. I think, that's, I think that's clear here. But he's also reminding us in the text that Jesus is the victor. He's not saying just look at Jesus as the example, but look to Jesus because in Jesus alone is victory. You see, he's not saying, all right, Christian, like, like you got to just knuckle down. You got to like, like grin and bear it, and like rub some dirt in it, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and like just in your own strength and your own power, live this life till the day you die faithfully. He's not saying like you gotta just like, like do it on your own. No, no, he's saying because the, the reality, you know as well as I do, we can't do it in our own strength and power. That's where the cross comes in handy, right? <laughs> it comes in handy like it's like this. That's where the cross comes in place. That's where... That's where the, the, the fact is, is that in Jesus is the victory. Only in Christ is victory. And he's not saying run your own race for your own success, for your own victory. He's saying run the race out of Jesus' victory. We can only run because we have victory in Christ. And he's saying don't forget that. So don't try to live this life in your own power because you will fall short. You will be, be discouraged and beat up. Realize that in Jesus, because of Christ, we have victory and we can run with confidence and we can run this life. We can, we, can, we can run this race. We can live this life in confidence because in Christ we have victory. He's saying run because the race is already won. You can endure in faith because you know what the outcome is. So keep your eyes on Jesus because he's the greatest example, but he is the source of our victory. Secondly, and in this, he gives, he gives two, two things to look to. He gives a person to look to, Jesus, and then he gives a group of people to look to, and we'll look at that. And then he gives us two things to, to put off, two things to get rid of. And so the second thing he tells us to look to, he's saying, look to those around you. And it's your second point. Is, learn from those who ran before us. We have to learn from those who ran before us. He's saying in, in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded... By so great a cloud. What is that noise? Am I also I'm like, wait, is, 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 is that the spirit? 
He's saying, learn from those who ran before us. Therefore, since you are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and, and what he's saying here is not, he's, he's talking about the Old Testament characters uh, in, in, verse, in, chapters, in chapter 11, right? But he's saying, when, when, he's, when, I, when I first read, like, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, my first thought, my first picture is like a stadium in that, like, I think of all these Old Testament people and all these, all the saints who have gone before us, like, watching us. But that's actually not what he's saying. Um, it's actually, he's saying, look at those who have ran ahead of us. So he's not so much saying, like, all these people who have gone before us are watching us. He's saying, you should be looking at them as the example. So it's not that their eyes are on us, but he's saying our eyes should be on them. And so I think it's important to realize that we not only look to Jesus as an example, but we need to be students of other Christians. We need to be looking at the stories, looking at the examples of other believers who have walked before us, because in them, there are such incredible lessons. I think that's one of the reasons why there is so much, so much of Scripture is narrative, right? It's so much, so much of it is stories. Um, it's not just like entertaining stories for us to tell our kids at, at bedtime, these are stories that we should be reading and learning from. I think, don't we learn well when we hear examples, like when we see a life lived out? There's just something about reading the story of someone's life or hearing a story or hearing someone tell their story that we just learn life lessons from it. We learn it well. I think, again, that's kind of the way God made us, and that's why so much of it in Scripture is story. So I think there are several things that we can take away from this one. And I think there are several things that we need to be, do, need to be doing better. Number one, we need, to be, we need to be reading the stories in Scripture, right? These, again, like I said, this isn't just for kids to learn in Sunday school. This is for us to be learning. So, so, so read the stories. Number two, we need to realize that our lives are the stories as well that other people are learning from. And this is why I think it is so important, church, that we are surrounding our kids and our youth with, with you, with adults who are investing their lives into teaching and training and discipling these young believers, these young kids and these, these teenagers, because our stories are the greatest stories that they, that they will hear. Don't you, you probably remember, your, you who have grown up in church, you probably remember your Sunday school teachers and your, you know, youth ministry, like, small group leaders. You probably don't remember a lot of the stories they, they, like, the Bible lessons that they gave, but you probably remember what their life was like. And there was probably things that you heard and watched how they lived their life that just taught an incredible lesson. And so we need to realize, and something that we tell our youth leaders all the time is we give you stories, we give you like Bible lessons to teach the students, but don't ever forget that your life is the greatest story that they will ever hear and that they will ever, ever, ever listen to. So we need to be surrounding our young people with, um, with our, us and our lives and teach out of our lives. And the third thing that I think is really important for us to take away from is that we need to be readers of Christian stories. We need to be readers of Christian biographies. I, I gave some examples. Um, there's a, there's a, a very short, just an introductory list of some, some books that I've read that have just been very profound in my life uh, in one way or another, and these are all uh, Christian biographies. Hey, some of you guys are beating me too. I was going to say, if you want to write these down or pull out your phone and just snap a picture of some of these, this is in no way an exhaustive list of 
of the Christian biographies that are out there, and there's some incredible ones that aren't even on this list. Like, this doesn't even come close to, to, to the, the full list. Um, the, the bottom three, the very bottom one, Great Lives from God's Word, that's a, book, that's a series of books by Chuck Swindoll about different Bible characters like David and Moses and Job and uh, Esther and, and just different, different characters from Scripture, and it's really, they're really great. Um, but the three above that, 50 people every Christian should know, 10 who changed the world, and from Jerusalem to Erie and Jaya, those are, those are a collection of smaller stories. So if you're looking for a book that just gives you kind of like a broad scope of, of short Christian biographies, those are three really excellent ones. I would really encourage you to read those. All these books um, are really short, like a couple hundred pages. I picked easy, easy ones if you're kind of like, if reading daunts you, is daunting to you. Uh, these are some really, really good ones. I strongly encourage you to be a reader of Christian biographies. John Piper says this. He says, Christian biography is the means by which the body life of the church cuts across the centuries. One of the ways I pursued wisdom of the pastoral work in front of me was the reading of pastoral biographies. David Platt says, apart from the Bible, the most profitable books I have read in my spiritual journey are sorry, let me try that again. Books I have read in my spiritual journey are personal biographies, particularly the stories of saints who have gone before us. Charles Spurgeon says this, the man who never reads will never be read. He who never quotes will never be quoted. He who will not use thoughts, this is brutal, he who will not use thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brain of his own. (laughs) Ouch, (laughs) right? Brethren, what is true of ministers is true of all people. You need to read. Folks, I think we need to, we need, we need to like, um, we, we need to do what the Hebrew, writer of Hebrews says. He says, consider. He says, engage your brains. Guys, we need to, we need to be people who, who read the stories of other people, not just so that we can get a good idea of what's going on in other parts of the world, but, but because in their stories, there's so much spiritual truth that helps us in our own. So we've looked at two things to, we've, done, we've, we've looked at the two things that the writer says to look at, and now we're going to look at the two things that the writer says to get rid of. The number one, it's number three in your filling, he says, he says, get rid of the weight that slows you down. Get rid of the weight that slows you down. In verse one, he says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So he actually differentiates He's saying there's sin that we have to get rid of, but he's also saying, he says, also get rid of the weight that clings so closely, this weight that weighs us down. And so I, th- I think what he's saying, I believe, is, is what's, what's coming to, uh, what he's trying to elaborate on is that, is that there are things in our life that are not like, not like categorically sin. That's not, it's not lust or greed or or jealousy, or pride, or bitterness, or, or whatever. But the presence of that thing in our life, personally, weighs us down. It's, it's, um, it's an individual thing. That there are certain things in our lives that, for some reason or another, keep us and prevent us from running the race, from living the life with endurance and with perseverance. For whatever reason, those things actually prevent us from being all that God desires us to be in Christ. An illustration of this is uh, the one, I'm, as I said, I'm not super athletic, not really competitive and all those things, but, uh, but, but one, 
hobby and, and sport, I guess you could call it, that I really enjoy. I really love to hike and to backpack and camp and, and all those things. Um, years ago when I was in, and I've been doing it most of my life, but years ago when I was in college, a friend, my buddy Tim and I went, uh, went backpacking, and we had gone for a couple of days, and we were, we were getting ready to hike out, and I thought, <laughs> you know, we, we'd been friends for a long time. I'm like, hey, I'm going to play a joke on him. And so, you know, we got our packs on, got all like buckled in and cinched up and like ready to go. And uh, he turns around and all of a sudden I go, hey, oh, Tim, hey, come here. Your, your pack, like you got some loose stuff in your pack. And you know, if you don't want stuff like rattling around, you want everything to be like cinched and tight. And so, so I reached down and I grabbed this rock, like, <laughs> like a big old fatty rock. Um, and I like, and I shove it in his pack, and I like cinch it shut. I'm like, okay, there you go, buddy. I got it. Got you all like cinched. He's like, oh, thanks, Stephen. You're such a friend. I'm like, <laughs> and so, and so sure, I mean, we hiked. It was like, it wasn't too far. It was like five miles back to, back to my truck. And we get, we get back, and we, you know, he takes off his pack, and we put it all the He goes, what's this? And he pulls out his, he pulls out this rock and I'm like, oh, got you. You know, it's like this rock in and of itself is not bad. It's not categorically bad, right? You don't, I mean, we, we went out into nature to see things like rocks and trees and, you know, but when it's shoved in your pack, it serves no purpose and actually weighs you down and, and kept him from, you know, and I wasn't a too, too much of a jerk. I, you know, it was, it was, it was fine. Um, it made him stronger, right? But, uh, you know, but, but when, when strapped on him, it, it slows him down and where it saps his energy and all those things. Well, folks, we have those same kind of things in our life that, again, we, we would look at and we're like, oh, well, that's not sin. But is it keeping us from being who God desires us to be in Christ and in living, running the race with endurance, living the life God desires for us, being effective for his kingdom. So think of like time management. Um, how much time do we spend on, on social media and, and in entertainment? Um, is there a hobby that is starting to turn into an idol for you that, that's, that's taking all your attention and all of your focus. Or like I said, going back to like the social media thing, I know in, um, this isn't just, it's often thought of as just a youth thing, but this is like across the board with adults too. But, but we use it, you know, we look at other people's lives and everybody like posts the great pictures of their life, you know, the perfect Instagram pictures on their life. And we look at that and we're like, oh, and you know, that's where jealousy can start to come in. So is there things that, um, or are there relationships in our life that are, that are preventing us that are, that are hindering our relationship with Christ instead of helping our relationship with Christ. And that's, the, that's what the writer's trying to say. He's like, he says, assess your life. Where is the weight? Where is the weight that you can cut down and run the race with more endurance? You see like marathoners, I mean, they have these, like, like they de definitely violate some high school ministry dress code shorts, right? I mean, they're like little. I mean, they, they want the littlest amount of weight and friction because they want to run with every ounce of their energy. And that's the way we need to assess our lives is, okay, where can I cut down the weight? What are things that are keeping me, that are hindering me from walking closer with Christ? So he says, he says get rid of the weight. Again, is it a hobby, uh, a, a, a time commitment, uh, Maybe it's a commitment, the many commitments of your children in your life. Is it like just draining you as a family from, from having um, time with the Lord, time with each other, uh, time to be involved in church? Again, these things, the, the writer says, are not categorically wrong, but if it's weight, we need to get rid of it. David Platt says this. He says, we live in a day 
where we idolize the good and trivialize the great. We live in a day where we idolize the good. There are so many good things in our society, and we idolize those. And the greatest, the most important things are the things that we trivialize. And number four, the last thing he says to get rid of is he says, get rid of the sin that trips you up. Get rid of the sin that trips you up. Friends, we have to, we have to stop this insane, crazy idea that we have too, far too often in our life that we can, that we can handle sin in our life, that, that, that we can tolerate sins that are in our life, that we can kind of keep certain sins hidden, undealt with, um, that we can keep some sins justified, like, oh, it's, it's not, like, we, we look at other people's sins, and we're like, oh, that's way worse, or like, that's, that's way, like, that's way more bad than, than me, and this, like, little habit that I've got, or this little, you know, struggle or problem, and we, and we label them, like, oh, I've just got this struggle, like, um, it's not, it's not so bad. Um, we have to see sin for what it is. We have to see the, the danger of sin, we have to see what God told Adam and Eve is that when you sin, there is death in that. Look at, look at the, the first sin. What happened? That Adam and Eve enjoyed this perfect relationship with God, and then they sinned, and it instantly they started hiding from God. They felt shame. God called out to them, where are you? And they're like, hiding. Like, have you ever had a little kid that does that? Uh, and it, then it broke the relationship with each other. When God confronted them on it, what did they do? Adam and Eve, they started blaming each other. They started passing the buck. That's what sin does. It breaks. It kills our relationship with us and each other, and especially us with God. We have to see it as dangerous, as deadly. As I started thinking through, like, illustrations of, of to kind of like illustrate the idea of sin. I started thinking of snakes. I don't know if you're a huge fan of snakes. Um, I, I think they're kind of cool. Um, but one thing that kind of like ooh, makes my blood go, run cold a little bit, no pun intended, uh, is, is that is rattlesnakes. I don't know if you've ever come across them. I've come across them a handful of times, but just hearing that rattle, ooh, like scary. Because you know, I mean, these are some venomous things and they can cause some real, real harm so I, so I looked it up, and just kind of Googled rattlesnakes, and I came across this article titled, How to Care for Your Pet Rattlesnake. <laughs> and the fact that there is an article there because someone has done this. <laughs> I love this. It starts with a warning. Don't consider a rattlesnake as a pet unless you have adequate space and knowledge of the species. Avoid keeping a rattlesnake as a pet if children, elderly, or disabled people live in your home. Don't play games with the snake. Knock on the cage or even take it out of the tank except to clean it or transport it. Why would you want a rattlesnake as a pet? That's crazy. And then there's this long list of things. If anyone actually has one, I'm sorry if I'm offending you, but that's crazy. Why? Because those suckers will bite you. How to care for your pet rattlesnakes. Snakes have gained in popularity in recent years as exotic pets. 
Many pet owners keep pythons as pets, but relatively few people harbor the gumption to adopt a rattlesnake. You think? <laughs> Listen, keep it legal. Some states, like Arizona, outlaw rattlesnakes as household pets. Good. Number two, secure your pet rattlesnake. Yeah, way to go, Captain Obvious. <laughs> Allow your pet rattlesnake plenty of space. And, and lastly, feed your pet rattlesnake pre-killed rodents. No way. The only reason I'd want a pet rattlesnake is to watch it, like, hunt down the rat. Uh, <laughs> no, who, again, I'm sorry if I'm <laughs> offending you, but, I mean, come on. Who would want pet rattlesnake? When, the times I've seen one, like, hiking or whatever, I mean, you, you know, right? You give those things, like, a wide girth because you realize that, that there is danger there. And when you hear that rattle, you don't go like, oh, what a pretty noise they make. Like, it's like a songbird. No, that's a warning. Stay away. As crazy as this sounds and is, by the way, sadly, I think the reality is that we have that mentality with sin, right? We have these sins in our life that we see as like, oh, this is it's like, it's not so bad. We would look at it like we'd say, well, it's in a rattlesnake. Like, oh, it's in a cage. It's fine. It's not going to hurt anyone. Like, I can feed it. It can stay there, and I can have this, like, separation in my life. But we need to see sin for the, the deadly, dangerous thing that it is in that with sin comes death and damage and broken relationships. Look at, look at David's example in 2 Samuel when he— when he gave in and we, when he had an affair with Bathsheba, is that first thing he did, he saw her, and then he asked about her, right? It's like, oh, this isn't so bad. It's, what's, what's the harm? I'm just looking, and now I'm asking. Still no harm, right? And then his, then his uh, servant said, like, oh, that's Bathsheba, the wife of your servant Uriah. Like, they, they made sure that he knew that she was a married woman, and then he calls her to himself. Then he has an affair with her, and she gets pregnant, and then he tries to cover it up, and then ultimately murders his, uh, her, her husband to cover it up. Heinous, heinous, terrible things that he did. And yet, so often, we have these sins in our life, and we tolerate them, and we think we can keep them under control. We think we can keep them hidden. But friends... We can't. We have to see them for what they are. We have to see them for the dangerous thing they are. And I'm not talking about, and I, I realize none of us is free of sin in this room. Every one of us stands guilty before a perfect and holy and righteous and just God. And that's where the cross comes in, right? That's what, that's what the writer in Hebrews is talking about when he's saying, like, when he's, when he's reminding the, the people that, that Jesus went to the cross, and that's where our victory lies. I'm talking, and, and so if we have sin, we should be confessing it. We should be repenting and turning from it. But what I'm talking about is these sins that we think we can keep covered up, these sins that aren't a big deal, a sin, these sins that aren't so bad. Friends, we have to see these things. These are, these are rattlesnakes that we're keeping as pets, and we have to see the danger that lies in that. And not only for us, but everyone around us that we love. That's another lie of the enemy, is that our sins don't affect anyone else. If you look again at, at 2 Samuel, what happened to David, the, the sin that he brought into his life affected his whole household. You, you, I mean, there is a drastic turn in 2 Samuel. Everything is really good in, da in David's life, and then he lets the sin in his life, and his family falls apart. It's because he opened that door. It's because he let that rattlesnake into his home as a pet. And it destroyed his family. Was there redemption? Was there repentance on his end? And did God restore him? Absolutely. But there is consequences. And God, folks, we have, to, we have to remember 
that the, that the sins that we are allowing, that we are tolerating, are deadly. And there are consequences that we will suffer for them if we continue to tolerate those things. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, get rid of those sins, friends. They are, they are weights that are holding you down. They are, they are like shackles on your feet that are keeping you from running the race. And so get rid of them. Matthew 5, 29 to 30, Jesus says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. And what is he saying? He's saying take extreme action to get rid of the sin in your life. Take extreme action. So friends, if, there's, if that's you, if there are sins that you are tolerating, that you are keeping quiet and secret and hidden, find someone you trust. Find um, Find someone in your R group, find a pastor, find a trusted friend, and, and confess those things. Not as a way to, like, feel guilty, and, and, but to feel free. A way, because, because these are such deadly things. We need each other. And that's another lie from the enemy, is that, is that, oh, you can handle it on your own. You can't. You need somebody in your life. So get some accountability. Get some repent. Uh, repent. Uh, get, get right in your relationship with God. Our speaker at winter camp this last year said this. He said, no one ever falls into sin. They slide into it slowly. Think about that. Nobody ever falls into sin. They slide into it slowly. You don't, nobody wakes up one morning. David didn't wake up one morning. He's like, I think I'll you know, have an affair and get this other guy's wife pregnant and kill him and all those things. It was, it was a gradual progression of sin, 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 justification, tolerance. Friends, we've got to get rid of these things in our life, all of us, because they affect all of us. But because of Christ, and this, is, and this is the important, this is what I want us to, to take away, to walk away with from this morning and remember, is that we don't, remember, we don't do this in our own power. We don't run this race on our own. We don't get rid of the weight and the sin in our own strength or our own power or for ourselves. We run it in Christ's victory. We run it because of the cross that Jesus endured for the joy that was set before him. Not, and it wasn't like, oh, I'm, I can't wait for the cross. You and I, believers. We were the joy that was set before him. It was the right relationship that he could have with us that was the joy that allowed him to endure the cross. Because of that is why he went to the cross. And it's in that victory that we have power over these things, and we can run that race with full endurance and and, and gain the life that God wants us to live. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much that, that you made it possible for us to live this life that we could not live on our own. Um, and God, yet, God, we live in this broken world, and there are things that hold us back. There are things that weigh us down. There are things that, that keep us from running with endurance. God, open our eyes to see those things. Help us in, in your Spirit's power. Give us the strength to, to run that we may bring you glory, that we may grow your kingdom on this earth, uh, that you may be exalted. Uh, God, God, we thank you for the victory that we have in you, and we pray in your name. Amen. God bless you, church. You're dismissed.